0: Father, we thank you so much for your mercy, your love, and uh, that you love us before we love you, that you, you pursue us, you go after us with more passion than we could ever even understand. You, you care about us deeply. And with that in mind, Lord, I pray as we study the lukewarm church of Laodicea, Father, that you would speak to our hearts and you would cure the wounds that we carry, and that you would be with us, and that you would speak um, loving healing into our hearts. Lord, I pray for any distractions we may have, that we would lay them aside and make a choice to focus our eyes on you and on your word. In your name we pray, amen. All right, we call this uh, sermon today, The Cool Church, The Cool Church, and I I found the sign Hipster Jesus loved you before you were cool. Can you fake being in love? Think about that. Can you fake being in love? Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan can. They've done it in more than one movie. You know, I, I, when I think of Hollywood couples that Play being in love so well. I think of Jim and Pam. Oh, so cute. <laughs> but all these things are just—they're they're just actors. They just look real, but it, it looks real when you're watching them on the screen, right? It feels real. You even get this emotion. Who didn't cry in some love scene, some sappy love story when when the love just wins out and you're like, "Yay!" But it's all fake. They're actors. They're pretending. So can you fake being in love and real love, real love, can it be faked? Well, loving is good. Loving is good. We know we're supposed to love God, don't we? Did you know, though, that loving is law? Loving is law? What I mean by that is they came to Jesus and they asked him, Hey, what is the greatest commandments in all of the law? And Jesus quoted two things to them. He said, what? Love God with all your heart and love others, right? Which he said those, on those two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And what that means is that those two commandments, if you just would follow those, you would naturally keep all the other commandments as well. They are the two greatest commandments. So my second question, you guys are well taught when, we, when it comes to the law and to, and to grace. So my question is, can we keep the law by our own efforts? Okay, so when we interpret that, can you love God just by deciding I'm going to love God? No, you cannot. That's not how it works. So we need to, we need to fall in love with God. We need to actually be in love with God. How do we fall in love with God and and kind of fall in love with other people as well, even people who are our enemies or our spouse? (laughs) How do we love? How do we love? Well, the answer to that question is it must be given to you by the Holy Spirit. It must be granted to you to have a heart of love. Let me illustrate this. When I was at the hospital and Zyman was born, it was a traumatic birth. His mother almost died, had to have an emergency appendectomy while in labor. And so she got appendicitis while in labor. Uh, It was a crazy situation, crazy story. And so I I thought that he was going to die. I was was really concerned, really worried, as you could imagine. So when they finally brought him out and brought him out to me, because I wasn't even allowed in there, they had emergency surgery and stuff. When they finally brought him out and I held him in my arms, I remember looking at him and feeling something that I had not ever really felt before. Love. Like, I'm going to love this kid, no matter how ornery he may turn out to be. I am going to love him more than he'll ever know. I would give my life for him. I would get run over by a train for him. I would love him. And that is something that he did not earn. What had he done at that point in time for, to earn that type of love? Nothing. He cried and pooped, <laughs> slept a little bit. Sorry to talk about your poop in sermon. <laughs> it's probably embarrassing, but it's all right. So he had done nothing except... He was born into my family. That's all he did. He was just born. And that place in my family put a love for me in him that is, is, was gifted to me, was granted to me. Well, in Romans 8.15, I'm going to read this verse to you. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, But you received a spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. See, the child never earns the right to be loved. They are loved simply by being born into into this family. But the child is also given, we are learned in the Bible, the child is given this love for their father as well. When we are loved by God, We are given a heart that loves him back. And this happens by, it says, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does this for you. It gives to you a heart that loves God. And love cannot be faked. Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks are not in love. They're not married. It it can't be faked. It can only be received, real love. When we receive God's love, then we have an opportunity also to receive a heart that loves him back. If I don't love as I should, I cannot just figure it out. I can't just muster up love. I must go on some dates. I need to get closer to God. I need to connect with him through Jesus Christ. And his Holy Spirit then will grant to me a loving heart. That brings us today to what we're going to study, which is the lukewarm church of Laodicea, a church that doesn't have the real thing. It does not have the real love. They are not on fire with passionate love for God. They are lukewarm, lukewarm. And this for us, as we've been studying, we've been seeing that these seven churches, these letters, they represent and they, they speak to the seven periods in church history, And there are, there's the local application, what these meant to, what these letters meant to those specific churches, and we look at that. There's a personal application, what it means to us, what it means to our entire church. And then there's also this historical application or prophetic application. And this speaks of, our church today speaks of the end times seeker friendly church of today. We are very familiar with this church. In fact, I fear, that it's starting to get its claws even to us, even to the faithful churches that are the faithful evangelical churches. This church is creeping in. And we're going to see today the reasons why and how we can identify where this church might be creeping in. Let me give you some, some things to watch out for with this church. Number one, they're seeker-friendly. We'll we'll look at what that means in a minute. They They sacrifice truth for peace they don't believe in the truth of jesus and god's word we're going to see that in two ways number one with creation number two with biblical authority we're going to study both of those today another thing that this church we're going to see is they are rich they are rich with money number four they are self-sufficient And so the word that we could really use to help us understand this church is postmodern. Postmodern. What that means is there is no absolute truth. What's true for you could not necessarily be true for me. And that's great that you have those beliefs, but I have these beliefs and my beliefs can be just as valid as your beliefs because there is no absolute truth. That's one thing that they really struggle with. So there's no absolute truth, yet when there is a disagreement on truth, they're going to line up with the way the world thinks, not the way the evangelical church thinks. They want a little of Jesus and a little of the word, but honestly, Jesus is a little too abrasive and radical for them. And and not everybody needs him. He's just a, a way. He's not the only way. And they don't want to offend anyone with the truth of the word of God. The name Laodicea means the rule of the people. And this name represents how this church does business. They are run by the majority of people's opinions and not necessarily by the word of God. You could kind of call this the mob rule mentality. The democratic church, where everything is decided and swayed based on popular opinion and voting, this church is very concerned with popularity. How popular are we? How popular am I? That's why I called it the cool church. That's why I named our sermon the cool church, because when you want to be cool, you want to be popular, right? (laughs) All right, well, let's go ahead and read the letter. And then we'll get into breaking it down and teaching what it means today. And to the church of the angel of the, uh, excuse me, I'm starting over. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth, because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, and I need, have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me, gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white guy- garments, that you may be clothed, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also have overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Laodicea, Laodicea. What we see when we look back in history at the city of Laodicea is very intriguing. It's amazing. We've seen in all of these cities that there's been some physical thing that we've learned about that city that correlated with jesus message to them well here we see that again first we see self-sufficiency was a mark of this city tacitus was a roman historian he tells us that Laodicea arose from the ruins of an earthquake by their own strength and their own resources with no help from the romans So Rome was going to help them rebuild after an earthquake, and they said, nope, nope, I got this, I'm okay. So this was after an earthquake in 60 A.D. They refused any outside help. They didn't ask for it, and they didn't want it. Laodicea said, we are too rich to accept help from anyone. Okay? Secondly, the second thing we learned is that they are proud of what they produced. So they're rich or self-sufficient, excuse me, and they're proud of what they produced. They, they prided themselves in three things that were made in Laodicea. First uh, was financial wealth. They were just rich. They, they loved the fact that they could make money. If you gave them 10 bucks, they would turn it into 50 in a couple weeks. They were good at economics and making money. They had an ex- extensive textile industry. In other words, they loved, they loved to make fancy clothes. They loved fancy clothes. Third is they were famous for making an eye salve that was distributed all around the world that would apparently help people see better. The next thing we see, so those are the the things they love to produce. We'll see that they really connect later in our study. The next thing is that a lack of water made them compromise with their enemies. There was no natural water source for this city. They had to import all their water. We'll see about that in just a minute. But one of those problems with this poor water supply is that it always made them vulnerable to sieges. You know what sieges are? So back in the day, if you wanted to uh, beat a city and take over a city, you could just set up a siege, which is block all the roads going in and out of that city so people couldn't come in or out and they would eventually be starving or be out of water and they would give in to your demands. And so the city was always vulnerable to that. So what they did, if an enemy ever surrounded the city, the Laodiceans were really quick to be accommodating to their enemies. Oh, what do you want? Would you want to maybe be trade partners? We could have this work out together for both our benefits. And, And they were quick to compromise With their enemies. They would negotiate. They're really good at negotiating. Now, as a Christian, we're going to see this is not good. This is not good. Fourth, we see they are familiar with the lukewarm. Their main water supply from Laodicea came from a uh, six miles away from a hot springs. And these hot springs are still here today. I got a couple of pictures. These are the hot springs in Hierapolis. Okay? There's a picture, it's real pretty. There's the people all swimming in the hot springs right there. How cool is that? So, in these hot springs, they're six miles away. Now, they ran to Laodicea through an aqueduct, and there's still the aqueduct still exists today. There it is, right there they would have the water flow from the hot springs all the way to Laodicea. But what happened, there's another picture of the aqueduct right there, what happened is along that six-mile journey, the hot springs would become the lukewarm springs, right? After water rolls along, it, it loses that heat, and it arrived at the city a very gross lukewarm. What is worse than lukewarm water? It is not very satisfying. Hot tea is great, cold water, refreshing, lukewarm, disgusting. And if you like lukewarm water like my mom, you're weird. (laughs) And to the angel of the... We're going to go on in our, our verses now. Verse 14. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans right? Now we're going to stop right there. Something's different in this letter already than all the previous letters. All the other letters said the church that's at this city the church of jesus that's at this city the church of jesus that's at this city this one's different he says this is the church of the laodiceans in other words this isn't jesus's church this is your own thing that you guys got going on this probably means this church self-identifies as being christian and jesus is like "Ah, i wouldn't be so quick to think that you guys are really believers we need to talk about some stuff they might call themselves christians but as we're going to see jesus is not in this church he's on the outside standing at their door knocking loving them offering them to come in and dine with them and meet with them but right now he's on the outside this is the church of the laodiceans doesn't mean he doesn't love them but he wants to be very honest with them, and he doesn't want them to misunderstand or have a false sense of security in thinking that they're okay with God. He's going to be very honest with them and say, you guys are not okay. And this is what he says about himself. These things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So Jesus, at the beginning of each of these letters, he draws a truth that we saw about him in chapter 1, and whatever applies specifically to this individual church. And here, he starts right off by attacking this church's understanding of him, who he is. He says, I'm the amen. I am the amen. If I said it, that's it. Amen means, so be it. It's the truth. It's done. There's nothing else to say. He says, I am the authority the only authority, and I am never wrong. This modern church, this postmodern church that we live in today, like the I Live School of Theology right over here, perfectly identifies this. They do not believe Jesus is the amen. If he said it, meh, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. Jesus is like, bro, not okay. G- um. This has been real popular in these last few years to get real liberal in your theology and to say, well, let's really think about how Jesus thought about and said. What did he really say, all the things that's in the Bible? How can you know? Who could know? I mean, we have so much science today, maybe we know better than Jesus. And in fact, this entire movement started in 1984 with a guy named Robert Funk. And he started this thing called the Jesus Seminar. Great name. Oh, let's have a seminar about Jesus. And you know what the point of this Jesus Seminar was? to rip apart the Bible, to tear apart Jesus' character, and to decide for themselves what they think Jesus actually said and what he didn't say, what was just added by authors. This is ridiculous. The historical evidence that the Bible is complete and perfect is overwhelming. If you look at the amount of witnesses that Luke had, Luke who wrote Luke and and the book of Acts, it, it is absolutely amazing how many people he included, who could have, any one of them could have said, oh, no, that's not true, I didn't say that, I didn't do that. But he includes a couple hundred different names of people who said, this is what happened, this is the witness, and this is how it happened. We know the Bible is true. But this Jesus seminar comes along, and they're like, oh, no, no, let's not not be so quick to just trust Jesus. Did Jesus really say all that's in the Bible? And what did he really mean when he said, I'm the only way? Hmm. Jesus says, I'm the amen. Then he says, I'm the faithful and true witness. I don't lie. I'm right about everything, Jesus said. I am not going to lead you astray. And the word of God is my witness. It's my testimony of all that you will ever need to know. The Bible is my word and the Bible is right no matter what you think. This is what Jesus is telling this church. This is what this church needs to hear. Because this church is struggling with what, what is the Bible? Why, why do you read the Bible? I don't understand it. I don't, it's hard for me. And there's lots of churches out there, and you know, you know how you can almost always tell what they think about the Bible? Do their people know to bring their Bible to church every Sunday? Do they open up the Bible and teach from it every Sunday? Now, we, we do believe, and you guys know, to bring your Bibles, and we have Bibles in the chairs, and if you don't have one, you take one for free because we're going to read the Bible every Sunday. We're going to teach expositionally. We're going to teach verse by verse and go through the Word of God because this is the truth. A church that has the pastor teach whatever he feels like every week, I'm not saying it's always bad. But you have to wonder, have they been touched by this philosophy of, I don't know if the Bible is necessarily what you need. You may need some of my wisdom. Then Jesus, he comes out swinging and he says, I am the beginning of the creation of God. Jesus is the beginning of the creation of God. The idea behind this in the word beginning is the word archi, which means the ruler, source, or origin. It doesn't mean Jesus was created, the first thing created. It means he is the origin of all that was created. He's the first of importance. He's the ruler of it all. He brings up a huge issue excuse me, that divides the church today, and that is the issue of creation. And you might think, well, that's not that big of an issue, but it is a huge issue, and I am not shy about what I'm going to say. You need to believe in creation. Evolution is a complete and total lie. If you believe in it, you've been deceived. I'm not going to say you're not smart, but you have been deceived into believing a lie that is not true. Jesus brings up this issue of creation, and it's funny that this modern church of today, it really isn't about creation. It's about biblical authority. Because if you don't believe in creation, and that creation was about 6,000 years ago, you're not believing the way the Bible says creation happened. Jesus is saying, I'm the only one that was there. I am the faithful and true witness. I'm the beginning of the creation of God. This is what happened. In the word of God, it says it. You cannot Believe the, in the Bible and Jesus and also believe in evolution. It is incompatible. Now, if you go through your life and you do believe in evolution and you die and you trust in Jesus, you're going to go to heaven because salvation is about trusting in Jesus. But you will have a massive effect on your life because you don't believe in the authority of the Word of God. How, do, how can you say that? You believe in either one or the other generally. Why? Why? Because Jesus said, Jesus said, in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. He said they lived at the beginning. Before them, nothing existed. He says, Jesus says, that Adam was the beginning of sin, which was the beginning of death. That means nothing died before Adam sinned. So you cannot have millions of years of death and evolution. Which evolution is just about death and things dying and other things taking their place and them dying and their weakness dying and blah. You cannot have that and the story of the Bible. They're mutually exclusive, they do not go together. You can't have millions of years and Adam because Adam was created, Jesus says, at the beginning. What else happened at the beginning? Creation. So Adam lived about 6,000 years ago. Young earth creation is biblical creation. It's what the Bible teaches. It's true because Jesus doesn't lie. Jesus doesn't lie because he's God. If you don't... if Sorry. I know Jesus is God because he rose from the dead. If you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, then you're still in your sins and you're not saved. So that's why this issue of creation is a huge deal because you're really asking, is Jesus sinless or is he a lying person? If you think he's a lying person, you're not saved. There is no sacrifice of a lying person that can take away your sins. So either Jesus is right and creation was 6,000 years ago or there's no point for us to go to church. There's no point for us to worship God. There's no point for us to not sin. There's no point. This is a big deal. So, have I been bold enough for you? All right, here we go. Can I get an amen? Amen. All right, there you go. So, you see, if the Bible is wrong about the date of creation, Jesus is a liar. If he's a liar, death means nothing for me. I can't be saved. Nothing matters. Most scientists will admit that the evidence points to a young Earth and not to millions of years. But this is very brushed under the carpet. Any scientists who do speak up about young Earth evidence, they get fired from universities, they get mocked as being foolish, and it's ridiculous because the evidence is overwhelming that the Earth cannot be older than really 6,000 years. I could go into that. I will not. I will spare you. Go to answersingenesis.com. But the Laodiceans are going to join with the world and fall on the world side of this argument because they don't believe in the authority of Jesus, and Jesus is like, this is a problem. They they call me a religious nut job because I believe the Bible's right about everything, even though science backs me up. Isn't that crazy? They're believing the lie and the, the religion. They're religiously following a stupid idea and they call me the religious nut job when I have not only biblical authority from a guy who broke the one rule you can't ever break, he rose from the dead, so he should be able to tell us what's up and and they have nothing. Oh, I get fired up about this. Okay, verse 15, let's go on. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot, I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. These words are extremely applicable, obviously, to the people of this city because of the lukewarm water that they drank every day and they hated. They loathed it. It's not cold and refreshing. It's not hot. It's disgusting. There's nothing worse. And this is a picture for us of their indifference and compromise. They like to play to the middle. They like to have everyone happy, be non confrontational. Jesus is very concerned that they think they're okay with him. The problem is that they are trying to please both God and the world. They're trying to be cool. They're trying to be popular. They're willing to compromise truth for peace. Jesus would rather them be cold than lukewarm we know that Jesus really wants them hot, but at least if they're cold, they're not giving people a false sense of security because that's what was going on here. And this lukewarmness is contagious. When we see someone else doing it, it becomes more easily for us to, to adopt it into our own life when we're, when we're connected with other believers and they're just like, oh, Jesus is cool. Let's go, let's go be part of this too, though. Don't, don't go too crazy for Jesus. It's it's infectious. And we're like, oh, maybe that's the way I'm supposed to do it, because they're cool. Maybe I should be like them. I'm gonna give a couple quotes from Spurgeon, because he was the man. He says this lukewarm prayers mock God. Oh brothers, brethren and sisters, have you ever really thought it would be an insult to pray to God with lukewarm prayers? There stands the heavenly mercy seat. The road to it is sprinkled with the precious blood of Jesus. Yet we come to it with hearts that are cold or we approach it, leaving our hearts behind. We kneel in an attitude of prayer, yet we do not pray. We prattle with certain words. We express thoughts which are not our real desires, and we feign or pretend wants that we do not feel. We do not do we not thus degrade the mercy seat? We make it as it were a common lounging place rather than an awful rest, wrestling place, besprinkled with blood of Jesus Christ. Wow. Other descriptions that Spurgeon gives of a lukewarm church. This is what he, he describes as a lukewarm church. They have prayer meetings, but there are few present for they like quiet evenings at home. When more attend the meetings, they are still very dull, for they do their praying very deliberately and are afraid to be too excited. They are content to have all things done decently and in order, but vigor and zeal are considered vulgar. They may have schools, Bible classes, preaching rooms, and all sorts of agencies but they might be just as well without them, for no energy is displayed and no good comes from them. They have deacons and elders who are excellent pillars of the church, but they exhibit no motion or emotion. The pastor does not fly very far in preaching the everlasting gospel, and he certainly has no flame of fire in his preaching. The pastor may be a shining light of eloquence, but he certainly is not a burning light of grace to set men's hearts on fire. Lukewarmness. Verse 17. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. This is Jesus saying what's really up with this church. He sees behind all the fake he knows he's watching a movie. When they come to church, it's just a play. And he says, "You guys don't get it." Matthew 4:3, Jesus said, "Blessed are the poor in spirit," right? This church does not understand this. They looked at themselves and they saw rich. They looked at themselves again and they saw, "I'm wealthy." They looked at themselves a third time and they said, I am, I need nothing. Their eyes are messed up. They do not see correctly. They have eye problems. They have eye problems. Dude, that just, I just came up with that right now. <laughs> the root problem, the root cause of the eye problems they have is pride (laughs) and lack of spiritual brokenness. They didn't understand what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. They don't have that brokenness. They literally can't see how much they need God, and that makes them lukewarm. Jesus says the truth is much worse than even what they think, that they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's not how to make friends. Hello, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked person. Will you be my friend? It doesn't work. Wretched means they're not good. Miserable means they're not really happy. Poor means they're not really rich. And blind means you're not really able to see with your fancy eyes have, and all the things you're so proud of producing, they don't help you really see the truth. And he says they're naked, which means they didn't really have fancy clothes. So all the things that we saw that this city was really proud of, the things they produce, Jesus says, that's your problems. Whatever is sourced from you is the problem not the solution. This is why psychology, human-centered, man-centered psychology does not work because anything sourced from you and they dig down deep inside you to find what's inside you to bring out the good. The problem is there's nothing there. You dig a well and it's empty. With Jesus, our source comes from somewhere else. Our healing comes from something else. That's why Jesus works to bring healing into people's lives. And that's why man-centered psychology can't. So Jesus' advice to them is this priceless truth, a priceless truth. Look at verse 18. He says, I counsel you. I give advice. Hey, you want some counseling? You want to go to a therapy session? Instead of going to a man-centered psychologist, I'm going to give you some counsel right here. And here's my counsel. Buy from me. Buy from me. He says, gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed and the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your your eyes with eyesalve that you may see. Jesus says, I want you to buy from me. Okay, let's go to the Jesus store. How much money do we need to bring? How do I get this stuff from Jesus? Here's the coolest part. It's free. Isaiah chapter 55 verses 1 and 2 says, Ho, everybody who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Yes, come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread? And your wages for that which does not satisfy? He says, listen carefully to me. And eat what is good. In other words, in my word, you buy this stuff without money. It's in my word. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Jesus' answer, he says, come to me and buy the things that you really need. And it's free and it's found in my word. The solution to all their problems and all our problems are the same. Go to Jesus. He gives real, refined gold. True riches. Jesus can make you rich spiritually. He gives real white garments. Real fancy clothes that are pure. True purity. Jesus can make you pure. He gives real eye salve that makes you see, can make you open your eyes to see real spiritual truths. Jesus can open your eyes. But this church is self-sufficient. And self-sufficiency keeps us from getting these things because it keeps us from coming to Jesus to buy because it keeps us focused on ourselves. How can we get bigger as a church? How can I get more pure as a person? How can I see better? We look to ourselves and the self-sufficiency actually keeps us from Jesus. But if we were to engage with humility and faith, F and H, we actually can obtain these things. They are the currency we must spend in the store of heaven. These relational realities that get God's grace into our hands, humility, God, I need you, I'm broken, I'm bankrupt, I'm blind, I'm naked, and faith, but I come to you and I believe in you. Humility and faith. Verse 19, Jesus continues, he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Jesus explains that all of this truth he's giving to them is because he loves them, and he's going to be very honest with them and with us, he will open your eyes to see, to show you how spiritually bankrupt you are so that the hope is that you will come to him and not depend on yourself. That's the hope. He says, therefore, be zealous and repent. Jesus says, I want you to get passionate About one thing what's the one thing confessing your sins to God and running back to him that's all you need to be passionate about we can't get zealous about plans and strategies about pastors or church buildings or about sermons or books The only thing that's really effective is running to Jesus in brokenness and neediness. That's the only thing that works. And here's a little secret. In all of my counseling, if I ever counsel someone, that's really the only thing I ever say. Run to Jesus. It's a secret. Don't tell anyone. Actually, just tell everyone. Running to Jesus is the only thing that works. It's the only thing that matters. It's the only thing to be passionate about. The ancient word, get this, for the Greek word here for zealous, comes from the same word as hot. Isn't that cool? Though Jesus hates their lukewarmness, he really wants them to be hot with zeal rather than cold, and then he says in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. This reminds me of Song of Solomon chapter 5 verse 2 that says, It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks saying, Open to me, my sister, my love. Song of Solomon is a beautiful picture of Jesus calling out to us and he's just knocking and the, the lady's heart is moved. Just, oh, he's knocking. He wants to know me, he wants to to come in and dine with me. Our next verse says, "If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me." So, what does Jesus really want from this church? A date. A date. He wants intimate relationship and fellowship. Eating people. Eating. <laughs> I was a little excited there. That took a turn. Eating with people was and is one of the most sincere and intimate forms of relationship. You can easily be accused of having an affair just by seeing having lunch with with another lady, right? Besides your spouse, but Jesus opens this great in- invitation of intimacy up to anyone, anyone. He says he's calling for anyone that would go on a date with him. And he shows us the way too. He shows us our side of the equation. He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, hears his voice, is humility. When you shut down all the noises of your own head, and say, my own thoughts don't matter, my own opinions don't matter, who I am doesn't matter, I'm broken. That's humility, when you can hear his voice. And then, opening the door is an act of faith. Again, we say humility and faith. You thought I was lying. No. Always there. Always there. That's our part every time. Humility and faith. No matter what verse you're looking at, that is what we do. There is no works involved in your salvation only humility and faith. Which are not works, they're relational realities. And Jesus' response to relational realities of humility and faith are always the same. He will come in and dine with us. If anyone, Jesus says. Notice that Jesus gives the calls to, gives this call to individuals. He doesn't, he's not talking to the entire church He's talking to each person in the church, if any one. We can't really talk about setting entire churches right, about fixing entire churches. He doesn't say if the church would open the door. Jesus is not interested in fixing entire churches. He's interested in fixing people, individual people, one at a time, And when you have a bunch of people that all say yes at the same time to Jesus, you get a church that is healthy and passionate for Jesus. The only way for us to be rescued from our own lukewarm hearts is to hear what Jesus says in humility and to fall before him daily and plead for words to hang on from the Bible. That's the cure for lukewarmness, to hear his word and to open up by faith. Say, Lord, I want to walk in what your word says. And I'm a step forward to do it in faith. Then what happens? Well, verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also have overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To sit down with someone on a throne is almost unimaginable. Thrones are generally owned for only for one person. I've never seen a partner throne. You picture a throne, it's just one seat, right? So you would have to be really, really, really close in order to sit with someone on their throne. Really just sitting on their lap, right? Well, that's a very date thing to do. And that's what Jesus wants, really, really close relationship, not cool. What happens when you're cool with someone? Oh, you're cool over there. I'm cool over here. I'm cool. I'm good. I'm cool. That is the death of our passion, wanting to be cool with God. Oh, we're cool. I'm cool with God. That's, <laughs> that is not what God's looking for. He doesn't want people to be cool with him. He wants people to be close, passionate about the date that they're on with him. Are you worried about being cool? Or are you rightly concerned about being close with God? We study every week how to be close with God. It's through humility and faith. There are no works you can do to be close with God. What can you do to make love not fake anymore? At the beginning, we asked that question, can love be faked? Well, maybe some of us have been faking it. What do we do to to fix a fake love? How can we do that? Can you, let me me phrase it this way. If you're married, what things can you do to start caring about what your wife says? How much can you do to fall more in love with her? The answer is you can't. If you looked at your wife and you told her, what do I need to do to make you happy? Is that going to go over well? How much do I have to love you? How many dishes do I have to do? How much? How? What are you looking for, woman? Those words are insane. You are going to get reamed. (laughs) And rightly so, because you're a jerk. Because what does she want? Love. She doesn't want you to be asking, how much do I have to do? She just wants you to pour out love for her. Well, what do we do to God all the time? God, what do I need to do to show you that I love you? God, all these rules, like I want I, how many of them do I have to keep before you'll accept me? We do this all the time. God is not looking for you to find out how much you need to do to love him. He wants you to sit down and learn how much he loves you. And as you spend some time with him, and as you read his word, he and his love, you just fall in love. You're just like, oh my gosh, I, I love this person. I want to spend my life with this person. You are not boring, you are intriguing, exciting. You're dangerous and loving all at the same time and, and I need more of you in my life. And to serve you is not a burden, to serve you is my greatest joy. That's what we learn in this letter here. God is not interested in you being cool. He's interested in you learning how much he loves you and just respond however you would respond when you fall in love with someone. Amen? All right. Well, we get a chance now to worship and and take communion, so we're going to go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you so much for your love. I thank you so much for bringing a letter like this into our lives, and more than that, we thank you that your Holy Spirit can speak to us and through us. And Lord, I thank you that that you desire to show us how much you love us. Lord, I pray, if there's anyone here today that has not ever received your love or has not ever opened that door in faith to what you did, I pray they would do it now. I pray they would call upon your son and ask for the forgiveness that only he can offer, being the truth and the faithful and true witness. Lord, I pray that if today is the day as someone is believing for the first time, Lord, that they would call out to you in truth. Lord, we we pray for all those in here who have been lukewarm. And I, I can't point fingers. I know that all of us struggle with a lukewarm heart at certain times in our life. And the church as a whole in our entire country and in this entire world, this is what defines us. This self-sufficient heart and this lack of a spiritual sense of need. Lord, help us to change. Help us to hear your words and eat them. Consume them and put them in our heart, Lord, so that we could see your love. And understand, Lord, we want to be clothed with the clothes that you give. And we want to have the riches that you offer. And we want to have eyes that truly can see the spiritual truths that you give. Jesus, we trust you and you alone. In your name we pray. Amen.